Hello and welcome to the Glenmary Ecumenical Commission podcast. The GEC exists to enhance understanding, reduce alienation, and foster reconciliation between Catholics and those within the evangelical and Pentecostal streams of Christianity. My name is Nathan Smith. I'm the Director of Ecumenism for Glenmary Home Missioners, and I'm joined today by Dr. Dan Olson. Dan, thank you so much for jumping on the call today. Great, great to be with you. Thanks for asking me, Nathan. Absolutely. Dan is the director for the Office of Ecumenism and Interreligious Affairs for the Archdiocese of Chicago. And uh, I'm really excited to have you on the call, not only because you're an avid Milwaukee Brewers fan and love baseball, as I do, but because uh, you have such wonderful insight as to how the family uh, might give us a vision for what ecumenism will look like. So we'll be talking about that today. But as it pertains to your role, if, and let's imagine we live in a world post or pre-pandemic, what does it look like to serve as the director for uh, the ecumenical office there at the Archdiocese of Chicago? What's your day-to-day look like? Well, to say it varies would be put, to put it mildly, but maybe I can describe some of the scope of the work we do, some of the general um, duties we have, our mission, and that can get at some of this. So as you noted in the title, we both are charged with dealing with ecumenical relations with all our Christian brothers and sisters, as well as the uh, our interreligious partners and the Jewish community included. Um, so we have a, a wide array of relationships that we maintain. Uh, our first task, though, really is to professionally staff Cardinal Supic. Um, he has deep interests in ecumenical and interreligious work and, and maintaining those relationships, advising him on different matters that come up related to our Christian brothers and sisters, um, the Jewish community, the Muslim community, the Buddhists. So staffing him and being expert at knowing what's going on both locally, regionally, geopolitically and around the world is something that's important for us to do. We also represent the Archdiocese in a number of ecumenical and interreligious contexts, various local councils, um, bilateral relationships with the Jewish community, the Muslim community, with some of our covenantal partners like the Episcopal Diocese, the ELCA Lutheran Church, uh, deep relationship with the evangelical community locally, the Orthodox community. So it's maintaining and representing the Archdiocese in a lot of those local contexts and, and the various councils. Um, and we also do a lot to educate Catholics about the importance of this work. Why are we called to be in relationship? Uh, why do we need to seek unity as Christ willed? Why do we need to build interreligious harmony? So our week, <laughs> our day, it varies a lot depending upon what we're doing, what meetings are coming up, who um, who needs uh, to have a conversation on what day, how do we support a particular parish, how do we educate school teachers in, in their work? So it really varies quite a bit, but to speak very broadly, that's some of the work we do. And it, it's really fun and both challenging and fun, I should say, because every day is different. And um, it, But it really at the core is about building relationships with various communities in Chicago. Yeah, that's wonderful. And I love that emphasis on building those relationships and being a support to both those within the hierarchy of the church, but also those uh, within, the, uh, within the pews as well. And when you and I spoke um, many months ago, you mentioned that your interest in ecumenism really came from your experience of working in parochial ministry, parochial ministry being church ministry on the ground. Uh, What was that setting like, and how did these ecumenical experiences uh, within that setting 
really propel you to your area of interest with your studies and your work now today? Yeah, my passion for ecumenism really started with my work out, out of college at a parish outside of Milwaukee. And I got the opportunity to join a local ecumenical council on behalf of our local parish, got to know um, different Christians through that and learned about their experience of Christ, how they worshiped, um, got to know them personally and their passion. Until then, I had been in a bit of a Catholic bubble. Um, I, I always went to Catholic school all my life. I was in the Catholic seminary, high school and, and college level. And, and this opened a new world to me, one I didn't really know. So that was one experience. The other was talking to couples in the parish, one of whom was Catholic and one of whom was a Christian of a different denominational affiliation. And just hearing from them about their experiences, some of, some of the challenges they faced, whether it was around Eucharistic sharing or communion, uh, where to baptize their children as they were born, um, whether or not to seek RCIA, whether that was something for them. So in all these conversations, I began to see a need. Um, there were really committed Christians, but they, they were experiencing some challenges in living out their life in Christ. So that led me to seek, what are the resources for them? And I was kind of disappointed. I didn't find a whole lot that they were figuring this stuff out on their own. So that passion kind of for ecumenism came out of those conversations and the um, the interest of these couples in, in the parish. Mm. Yeah, that's great. And your emphasis on just like these questions of, of baptism, uh, you mentioned RCIA. So for those unfamiliar, that's really just how does one become a Catholic? What is the kind of religious education in some ways and in, in, in different uh, roles in which that functions? Uh, and so a lot of these questions maybe don't come up to families or individuals until they like find themselves in, in that situation. And so they're like, okay, what do I do with this now? And so this, uh, these, this learning, this, these questions, and then the search for these answers really is what propelled you into your dissertation topic, correct? Correct. Um, it, I took this interest, um, this question with me to graduate school at Loyola University in Chicago. I got my master's in theological studies and I, I was so deeply interested in further studies that I stayed for my PhD. Um, <laughs> But during that time, I, I brought this question to my ecclesial studies, you know, ecclesiology, um, different understandings of the church. So how do these families live this reality of Christianity coming from two different church settings? So again, I began to research the topic. This led to my dissertation, which uh, was called Living Bridges. Um, hmm. So it, that was the title that I most found resonated with what I was hearing, that these were families and couples with children who were providing bridges between our two communities that might not otherwise be there. It's a loving relationship. So that's what I really focused in on and looking at through the prism of, of the church or the family as domestic church was, was really the key there. Yeah, that's that's really great. So for those maybe unfamiliar with this term, this domestic church term, which I think is really beautiful and has resonance for evangelical Pentecostal communities as well, it does with Catholic people. Uh, could you speak more on that? What is this idea of the domestic church? Where does it come from? It really goes back to St. John Chrysostom, um, one of the early church fathers. Um, so it's a very ancient term that was, when, when the church was beginning, it wasn't the church as we understand it today. These were communities and homes um, 
not unconnected, very much rooted with the Jewish community. There wasn't a whole lot of separation in the early church. Um, but the center of the life of the community was in the homes of the various families, worship and everything. So this understanding of the church is the first educator, the first formator. This is where people come to know Christ first, took root very early on. And I, I think there's a push now to recover some of that, um, this sense of the family is the first church, really. This is where um, the parents serve as sort of pastors of the, the family. The children teach in their own way as disciples. They learn. They're connected to their parishes and congregations. But if the home is not supportive of this work, uh, the church life will not take off. So it's that sense of a first or um, initial church for many families, not formally defined, but experienced. Mm -hmm. So what are some things as we, it's so easy, I think, as we consider what the church is, it's easy to focus it on it being this hierarchy. Or from another perspective, it's really easy just to focus on it as my local congregation of 200 people where I go to on Sundays. It's this building uh, or this specific community. But if we're going to be narrowing in with your with your interest in your topic here on the domestic church, what do you think that we could learn, wh whatever those focus areas are, whether you're coming from a place of saying the church is this 200 people here, or it's this hierarchy that goes throughout generations and nationalities, what do you think that other view of church could learn from these domestic churches, especially those domestic churches that maybe come from what would be titled, I think, inner church uh, communities, interchurch families, one coming from, say, a Catholic background, another coming from, say, a Pentecostal or an evangelical background? Yeah, there's a, I think there's a few ways, Nathan, to look at this. Um, one is through the, the prism of receptive ecumenism that is very much out there um, and, and being discussed, but that this sense of unity in Christ is received at the local level. And there's no more local level than the, the the home. This is where people encounter this. So if children and couples are experiencing someone from a different denomination, um, experiencing their love for Christ and seeing that on a daily basis, how they go about it, how do they worship, how do they pray, uh, it affords these couples and their families a chance to pray together as Christians daily. Um, there's just something that can be learned in those encounters that touch not just the mind, but the heart, um, that they come up knowing that to be one in Christ is rooted in our baptism. Um, it's not that we're all the same, uh, but they begin, if, if this is experienced well, to learn each other as gifts, not as challenges. I, I get to see the giftedness of the evangelical community's study of Scripture. Uh, or preaching, or the, the great music you find in some of the Christian traditions, or the, the art in the Orthodox tradition, or, or liturgy in, in the Catholic tradition. Like, there's so much that they learn that if, if you come from a same church, so to speak, family, you get one narrative all the time, and that can be a real powerful narrative. And that's, my, my wife is Catholic, I'm Catholic, this has been a tremendous experience for us. But I don't get to experience another church in the same way I would if my wife was, say, Episcopal or Evangelical. So I, I, I think we need to begin to distance ourselves from problematizing these families and instead see them as, as mm -hmm. gifts 
that they get to learn from each other in ways that not all of us can. And they have narratives and stories about that, that they can really help us to understand more about unity in Christ. Yeah, I really love that too, because what that does is it puts it on the ground in such a way that the domestic church, as we're talking about ecumenism, Christian unity, um, is really uh, the the example of that. Whereas you and I are in these specific roles where we're, you know, directing efforts in ecumenism, what most people experience is kind of the ecumenism of friendship, of I know this Baptist, or I know this Assemblies of God, or I know this Catholic, and gosh, they just like do some super weird things that I'm not have any familiarity with, you know, depending on what your background is. But what I hear you saying is recognize your family and you as yourself as a part of this, as uh, as the church, and you have a role to play within the ecumenical uh, endeavor. Right. And in Vatican II, the decree on ecumenism, Lumen Gentium, the dogmatic constitution of the church, we hear the bishops of the, the council imploring Catholics to get involved in the ecumenical movement, not just the hierarchy, not just the priests, not just the religious, but everyone. Everyone has a role to play. And to me, this is sort of um, really rooted in that vision of the Second Vatican Council for Catholics that uh, you're not a bystander just because you're not a, a priest or a cleric or a bishop. You have a decisive role to play in making ecumenism the life of the entire church. And that, that's really important for people to, to take ownership of, to grow as mature adult Catholic or, or Christians in general and, and say, you know, this isn't just the job of the clergy. This is mine too. And this is a way I can contribute to, to that task of you know, Christian unity. Yeah, I think that could be really helpful too, as we start to consider, um, all right, how do we do this with, uh, you mentioned receptive ecumenism, which is an idea uh, brought out by a, a Paul Murray over at Durham, and he uses this term that we should receive gifts with dynamic integrity. And so I could see people saying, okay, well, I, okay, I I, I can see my friends as being fellow Christians, whatever their stripe might be. And, um, but how do I receive something from them in a way that is genuine? It It isn't like me watering down my tradition or something like that. Uh, how would you encourage uh, people to to be able to go into the depths in that regard and seeing, all right, what what are actual gifts that I might learn from this other Christian person? Yeah, I think I would first address this by speaking about a fear that I hear from many Christians that if I get too close to to a Catholic or to a evangelical or or to a Presbyterian. Um, I'm going to lose my my own sense of church, my own sense of Christianity. I don't ever find that to be the case in my conversations. I always learn that there's there's more to the church than I knew previously when I have a conversation. It, it's not to say that I agree with every uh, every perspective of every tradition. That, that that's not possible in many ways. But I, I learned something about you know why. Do you do it that way? Why do you speak that way? Why do you understand sacrament in that way? Um, and it makes me also enter into the conversation by thinking about what what do I believe? You know, I've been saying this all my life, but everyone else agreed with me. Now there's a person that may not understand what and why we do this. 
So I have to step back and it develops my own faith in ways that matures my spirituality, my, my practice of living in Christ. So I, I think there's a lot of benefit to engaging in these conversations, as you say, with integrity and stop assuming that the other is just trying to win points or convert you to a particular perspective, that they're trying to share something valuable to you. And there's a gift in that. And that shouldn't be threatening. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a great, great point, too, and, and a helpful word to hear because um, what is keeping us apart is is largely false narratives, is fear. Yeah, there there are certainly differences, um, but if we're going to overcome those differences and move into the area of Christ's own longing and prayer, John 17, then we can't succumb to that fear uh, that just arrives with with those different types of situations that we might experience within uh, meeting a yeah, new I might, friend. I might also add these conversations, particularly in interchurch families, are done in, with a deep level of trust and friendship uh, and love that uh, when the relationship precedes these really important conversations, there's a level of trust already in place. So sometimes it's really important to build the relationship and mm, not yeah. start with the real tough questions. Yes. What do we share in common? Let's live together for a while, whatever that means, you know, do some social justice projects at the local level. But um, as you enter into a friendship, as you well know, your conversations change. You're, you're able to ask tough questions lovingly rather than confrontationally. Mm-hmm. And that's another gift I would point to with interchurch families that they can teach us is really get to know and love and trust someone and then talk about these things. And and you hear them differently. They're received differently. Yeah. Well, you have that relational equity with them so they can hear you differently. And also, if you go in, I think uh, Pope Francis has mentioned this, the importance of assuming the best in the other person, you know, as you go into a relationship is so important. Mm -hmm. But it's an easy thing to, to forget. It, it really is, and I, I think we've maybe too long kind of held on to these um, tropes or misunderstandings that that are rooted in a kernel of truth, but we've begun to assume the worst in one another and present the worst of another tradition rather than its best. Uh, and, and that's not helpful to the ecumenical movement, and it's, it's in many ways not true. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And so we've been talking here about what we can learn from uh, inner church, domestic church families, and how those families might um, express uh, the gospel to others as well, and the gospel of, of this uh, of ecumenism too, uh, but the gospel of Christ, which is included within that. Um, maybe more on the ground, how would you encourage these inter-church families as these, and maybe you can just speak pastorally without using any names um, from your own experience of, say, you have, um, you know, a young family who just had a child, uh, one from an, an evangelical background, one from a Catholic background, and now they have these new questions, like, how do we raise this child? Do we have them baptized now? Do we wait until uh, they um, desire to be baptized. Uh, how do you uh, direct these types of conversations? Um, well, I'll tell you how I don't do them first, which is tell them what to do. Um, Very good. Very first, good. Well, that's the first press pastoral approach. I would just mention that uh, there's no one size fit 
so I'll answer to the this pastoral question. What I try to invite are the, the questions they need to be asking. Um, what is baptism? Um, what do we understand about um, uh, how will this child be raised? Is there one tradition primarily with access to the other? Um, so there's there's preliminary questions that should be engaged in, not with the couple alone, with family members. Um, sometimes the mom or the dad or the grandparents are really invested in making sure you've had that conversation with them about this is what we're thinking, we'd like your input, um, talk to your pastors, get them involved. Um, but th the real uh, thing is, as we go back, and this is another thing I think we can learn is, um, this becomes a problem and a source of pain and discomfort in many ways for interchurch families because of something that's not their own making of a problem. Our churches are divided, which makes them have to make tough decisions. And, and that's another prophetic witness I find in these couples that they can't just, oh, yeah, we're divided. No big deal. Let's go to church on Sunday. Right. And, and it doesn't bother me. This is something that they can't ignore if they're going to be faithful to their traditions. So walking with them as they discern these things, making sure they've talked about it, but it's really hard to pin down and, and answer for any particular situation other than to say, um, talk to one another in Christ, pray about it, involve all the important actors and people in your lives, uh, and then make a decision and you know, we make mistakes. <laughs> um, do, do what's best and then continue to reevaluate that. Is, was this the right decision? What should we do next? Um, but throughout your building relationship together in, in prayer in Christ with connection to your parish, and there's something that can be learned from all that. Yeah. And what, what I kind of envision as you're saying that is, you know, you have this family who's asking this question, and then you're bringing in uh, the different ecclesial communities and other families, uh, uh, family members within this question. But there's also a sense of trying to be attuned to the spirit that I hear you emphasizing as well. And, you know, where is the Lord leading within this? And as you mentioned with Vatican II, it points out clearly that uh, the Lord is, has desired and, and chosen to use uh, communities even outside of the Catholic Church to bring salvation to the whole world and these other uh so there's, there's a sense in which the Spirit is also at work and moving within this. And there there needs to be uh, the conversation and attunement in that regard as well. Yeah. And I might also add, sometimes our churches make it difficult on these couples in the sense of the, the Catholic spouse has to promise to do all in his or her power to raise the child and baptize and raise the child in Catholic tradition. Uh, I sense in other Christian communities that's a very similar sentiment that uh, a spouse in that tradition would, would also feel. Um, I, I don't know if I have an answer for it, but I'm, I'm just suggesting that sometimes our church polities bring really challenging situations to these couples rather than um, offering advice and uh, encouragement for the conversation. It, it, it's presented more as a directive that you almost have to do this and if you don't, you're really going to have a great reason to do so. Um, I, I'm not suggesting it's not important to consider all that, but um, it, it can be read really challenging for, the, for a couple to be told that 
you have to do everything you can to have this child be Catholic. And and the person on the other side, maybe it's Orthodox, being told the same. Well, mm-hmm. you put them in a real tough spot. Yeah, I, I know a number of people who um, maybe were baptized Catholic and then begin going to another uh, church where they don't recognize that baptism. And so in order to, to vote as a, a member of that other community, they have to be rebaptized essentially. And it does put them in a weird spot. And so in some ways, uh, if you're in this inner church uh, situation and in inner church relationship, um, maybe what we as, as all Christians can learn from these people is just a, a sense of patience with the situation as to where we are as uh, within these polities and whatnot, where we are right now. And to be patient with that, because it's really easy within ecumenism to be like, oh, I just want to run to the finish line. And but there's recognition that there's really no finish line. Right. We don't know. Speaking about coming out of this pandemic, I mean, we don't know what's happening in, in a month or two months or a year with with where this is, as we didn't in the past. But we know we've been changed by it all. And to, to me, that's ecumenism in a lot of ways that. When you're in a relationship with another Christian church, uh, another ecclesial community, you're really changed by that experience, and for for the better. And we we need a patience. Um, uh, France, Pope Francis talks about not just encounter but accompaniment, and to me, that's the operative word here that was brought up a lot. Morris Laetitia, his um, apostolic exhortation on, on Christian family, that that we need to um, accompany couples. And if I'm honest, I don't know if our churches, I think there's many of them, if not most, if not all, we don't do the best job accompanying couples in the questions that they're having as they go through life. Some do marriage prep real well, um, but we need to focus more as a church on accompanying couples and addressing their questions and, and that to me seems like a long game approach rather than a you know quick quick answer to anything that may not you know be the answer for all. Yeah, and what I think you're what I'm hearing and you I feel like you're pointing out is is this really interesting thing with ecumenism uh, is that it's not exactly a um, it's not exactly a, a specific field. You know, it goes throughout all different fields of of understanding and study um, and experience, uh, because the way you're describing this this pastoral vision is really coming from the place of desiring to move people into, uh, as uh, you know, Second Peter points out, the the divine nature, moving into um, this idea that uh, we are all growing in holiness, and that's really what our end goal should be, and um, so ecumenism, and I think Yves Congar points this out too, who is a great Catholic ecumenist, is it's not uh, just uh, one like, okay, I'm going to be uh, focusing on ecumenism. Ecumenism is something in which we experience as Christian people throughout our whole lives and all of our interactions. Uh, yeah, I agree. And it's <laughs> it's often forgotten. It's called the ecumenical movement. And <laughs> it, it, it's it's. it's active it's it's moving it's it's tending toward a particular direction that that gets lost sometimes we want this to be the case right now that we're in full communion we we don't want to wait for that to to occur but 
We're moving. We're moving together. And the more we do that in the spirit, the the closer we'll get to that. And I just might also mention one other thing I wanted to make sure I, I said. I think what's overlooked sometimes is the connection to the ecumenical movement and our ability to evangelize. That when we see all these different churches, denominational affiliations all around, you drive down a street in the Midwest here, and, and you can see four different Christian churches in less than a mile. Uh, what What is that message to the world about we can't commune together, we can't pray together, we can't be together on Sunday, which has become a very segregated day for us? Why is that? It, it hampers our evangelization efforts, our, our mission as, as a church. So this cannot be distance, uh, meaning the ecumenical movement, cannot be distanced from our stated goal, from what I'm hearing, of re-evangelizing the, the Western world in a way that is so much needed. Yeah, absolutely. And just looking at kind of where we are within our own culture, there's just deep divisions politically. Uh, what kind of message would that be to, to see Christians coming together? And, uh, you know, th- there's differences. There's places of disagreement that are deep. Um but you know there there is a sense in which if Christ prayed for this then we should we should model this we should long for the spirit to help us in this way yeah and again i don't mean to minimize myself the differences um that that can be very deep uh, but if we're not talking to one another if we're not praying together if we're not speaking about this we're not <laughs> adhering to Christ's will to put it bluntly his prayer in john 17 this was not something we created as a church. This is something that was gifted to us by Christ in some of his final words, that this is what he saw is the unity of his believers in, in his Father's in, in, through the Spirit. And to the point that we don't do that, we're hampering his ability to um, bring about the kingdom of God. Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned earlier uh, how we recognize gifts within other Christians. And that reminds me a lot of uh, Pope John Paul II's emphasis that uh, ecumenism isn't simply an exchange of ideas, but a mutual exchange of gifts. Uh, Could you speak more on this idea of gift exchange? I know we talked about receiving with dynamic integrity, but even identifying these within my own tradition and saying that these are something that can be shared with other people in a way that isn't, you know, uh, lording it over them or or, uh, proselytizing in some sort of way but uh, things that the Lord has given us that are unique to our traditions that maybe could elicit some sense of growing in holiness and a deepening of unity with other Christians as well. Yeah, I, there's two sides to any gift exchange. Um, there's a giver and there's a receiver. So I think there are two ways of looking at this. One, as myself, a Catholic Christian, as I experience other Christian traditions, whether it be Orthodox uh Anglican, Episcopal, Evangelical, Pentecostal, I see things that are present in those communities that um, either aren't as strong or could be strengthened in our our church in in many cases. So I I feel like I receive a gift of Christ's church in those encounters. But I also, maybe more to your question, I think that the Catholic Church has some tremendous gifts that I want others to know about. Um, our, our sense of tradition, history, the sacraments, the role of the Eucharist, 
the life of the church. Um, there's so much the spirituality that is so deep uh, from ancient days to present in, in the Catholic Church. I'm so excited. I want to share this with other people too. So I feel both that I have something to share in these encounters and something to receive. Um, and, and if people can bring that mentality to these conversations, I, I think to your point, John Paul II said this very well, this will advance our, our relations greatly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's this idea of spiritual ecumenism too. It's like a, a prayer and a continual conversion of our own hearts and as we are open to receive gifts, that's kind of imply that we're open to a sense of conversion, meaning uh, that we're always being changed. Yeah. Well, again, to go back to Vatican II, they talked about the church is constantly in need of conversion or reform uh, as the heart of spiritual ecumenism, as, as you said there. And if we're not about that work, this <laughs> the depth needed to really get where Christ wants us, it's, it's not going to happen. Absolutely. And uh, when it comes to, just to, to, to kind of end here, when it comes to your own desires, maybe for uh, your own family uh, or for the churches that you work with there, uh, the parishes that you work for, with there in uh, Chicago, what are your own desires for Christian unity, your own desires for what type of church we would be? You've kind of been saying it all within this uh, within this time, but to kind of sum it up, what, what what do you hope for, and where do you see us going in some ways? Well, I'll end with the easy one. Um, <laughs> I'm I'm a hopeful person. I, I'm not naive. I don't think, but to me, it begins with doing together what we can do together right now, which includes prayer in many many instances, and. To me, my hope is rooted in those things that will build relationship, uh, will, will begin to allow us to see one another, frankly, as brothers and sisters rather than as adversaries in, in some zero-sum game, that we're all tending toward the same thing. We all want the same thing. Um, so my hope is that we begin to see one another as actors in the same divine plan, uh, rather than some sort of adversary. But to do that, I think we need to dig down rather than, we've done a lot of the work at the higher levels, uh, uh, paving the way for this conversation, but it needs to get down into the, the couples, the, the communities, the parishes, the congregations, to the hearts of the everyday believers that that uh, to me will blossom upward I think that's the next step that I see is, is for this movement. Not, I don't feel like there's any sort of winter. I just think that the, the heat has shifted to a different place hmm. rather than the doctrinal conversations. It's more in homes and in communities where people are getting to know each other. And if we focus there, we'll, we'll see the renewal we're uh, expecting or hoping for. Yeah, this is wonderful. And this is great insight because this really gets to the space in which the church lives out. Uh, it's its calling in the home and in the interactions, just even in the workplace, in our day-to-day -day lives as we're growing in holiness and uh, through these acts of evangelization. So Dan, thank you so much for joining us on the call today. It's been wonderful to talk to you. I really appreciate, Nathan, the invitation and I'm happy to talk at any point and 
Um, best of luck. I appreciate very much what you're doing in the conversations you're having. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you for joining us on the Glen Mary Ecumenical Commission podcast. 